This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, The Young Turks, The Bugle, The David Pagman Show, The Majority Report, Throwing Shade, Dan Savage, The Green News Report, Counterspin, and The Rachel Maddow Show. And a note that this will be the last episode basking in the schadenfreude of the conservative loss. After this, we go back to reminding you about all the things that are messed up in the world. So enjoy. This week, while Republicans were still trying to explain why they lost the election, Mitt Romney told a group of donors that it was because President Obama promised black, young, and Hispanic voters free health care in perpetuity, college loans, and amnesty for illegal immigrants. Not once, while explaining his defeat, did Romney even mention incompetence, delusion, or his personality. (laughs) As President Kennedy once said of Richard Nixon, he went out the way he came in, no class. (laughs) Though often accused of inconsistency during the campaign, Romney instinctively circled back to his now classic 47% argument that worthless freeloaders found Obama's bribes irresistible. Of course, that is now up to about 51% with 332 electoral votes. (laughs) Romney insisted that unlike Obama, who made shameless appeals to specific interest groups, Romney had wanted to deal with big issues like getting rid of Planned Parenthood, Medicare, and the minimum wage. Paul Ryan, who also didn't pick this week to become honest, seemed to think the defeat boiled down to an unexpectedly large urban vote, meaning that if black voters do nothing else, they'll always show up to vote for a black president, sometimes weeks in advance and especially after church. (laughs) Many other Republicans have been more pragmatic about their image problem. For the first time in four years, they appear to be willing to accept Obamacare and negotiate on immigration and tax increases. And bitterly, they blame Romney for being a terrible candidate, because with a better one, they wouldn't have had to make those concessions. Romney, for obvious reasons, has decided to go on being full of crap. In perpetuity. I doubt anybody will read his next book. Let's quit talking about him. Some uh, Republicans are so disgruntled with what happened during the elections that they have now started uh, secession plans. In fact, they're going to the White House website and formally requesting a secession. Now, it doesn't really work that way. You don't petition the White House and the White House goes, oh, well, I see the Alabama won't like to secede. Okay, well, then go ahead. Right? Well, you've got your 25,000 signatures. I guess there's nothing I could do to stop you. No, but what it does is it... If you get past 25,000 signatures, then the White House has to respond to you. That's the system that they've set up on their website. So, for example, the state of Alabama, uh, and it's not the state, and it's not their governor or anything. I don't want you to get it wrong, okay? But it is people within the state have asked for this petition. Quote, we petitioned the Obama administration to peacefully grant the state of Alabama to withdraw from the United States of America and create its own new government. So the minute this started getting any kind of attention, it immediately exploded. Over 30 states have now registered to secede. Again, it's not the actual states, it's people within the states. So who is going to be the leader on this board of dumbasses? Well, of course, Texas. 
Texas, uh, as we go to uh, air today, has over 84,000 signatures. Louisiana, over 30,000. Florida, 25. Georgia, 24. Alabama, 23. Tennessee, 22. North Carolina and South Carolina, 22. Arkansas, 16. Colorado, 16,000 petitions saying we'd like to secede. If you noticed, the great majority of those were red states. Really shocking. Now, it's interesting because Mitt Romney talked about the makers and the takers. Uh, Paul Ryan always talks about that. It's this Iron Rand philosophy. You know what? 53% of the country are the makers. We make this stuff, and then these moochers come in and they take our stuff. Well, let's look at that top 10 list and figure out who the makers and takers are. Hey, look, three of them are actually makers. Now, this is the amount of money they get back from the federal government for every dollar they send to the federal government. So 80, the citizens of Texas only get 85 cents back, so I can understand why they're slightly disgruntled. Arkansas is 73, and Colorado 91 cents. But when you look at the great majority of the list, they are the takers, the moochers. Louisiana takes $1.10 for every dollar they send, Florida $1.20, Georgia $1.09, my personal favorite, Alabama at $2.03, Tennessee at $1.11, North Carolina $1.13, and another deep red state, South Carolina, uh, living off of welfare from the federal government at $1.92. Now, Tennessee was on that list. Uh, one of their congressmen has been threatening secession for a long time, Zach Womp. Here's what he said uh, a couple years back. He said, I hope that the American people will go to the ballot box in 2010 and 2012 so that the states are not forced to consider separation from this government. Well, if states like Alabama want to secede, there's a certain mountain man that has a message for them that I'd like to share with you all. And I said, get away from here. Get. Get. I love that clip. <laughs> Alabama. Listen, you traitors in Alabama. You want to talk about treason? You want to talk about leaving the United States of America? Now, it's not the whole state, obviously. But all these people that signed the petition, including in Texas, over 80,000 people, okay? That's exactly what you are. You are un-American. Literally. It's the exact definition. You want to act, commit an act of treason and leave this country? Are you kidding me? You'll be begging us for a pathway to citizenship within 20 years. In fact, if it's Alabama, they'll be begging us for a pathway to citizenship to Mexico in 20 years. What the hell is Alabama going to do without the rest of us? Look, if after Bush won, could you imagine if New York, Massachusetts, and California said, ah, you know what, we want to secede? Here's what would happen at Fox News. How dare they? We're going to withdraw our troops from them. Look, Bill O'Reilly already talked about letting the terrorists bomb Coy Tower in San Francisco. And they didn't do anything near a secession effort in their state. But luckily, of course, those states are solidly within the Union. Uh, because if you took those guys out, Alabama, without the economic power of New York and California behind it, what are you going to do, son? What are you going to do on your own? Oh, are you going to have a huge economic capital in Tuscaloosa? Am I offending you? Am I offending you? Look, there's a lot of great folks in Alabama. I've been to Alabama. Lovely state and a lot of good progressives. But there are a lot of knuckleheads in Alabama. If I had to pick one state to go, I'd pick Alabama. And God, it would be a fun experiment. Of course I'm against it, right? But if we saw them just struggling, and what happens the next time a disaster hits? 
and you turn around and you go, oh, can I get some federal help? Oh, sick, we're not part of the federal government anymore. Oh, no, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? Alabama, please. Now, why did I pick Alabama out of that list? You remember the, in the Republican primaries in this year, they did a poll of Republican voters. How many of you think interracial marriage should be illegal? Oh, come on, that's insanity. It's got to be less than 1%. No, wrong. 21% of likely GOP voters said interracial marriage should be banned by law. Good luck to you. Good luck. The reality is, of course, they're never going to do anything along those lines. And if they did, we'd go to war. And, oh, the last time that happened, only about 600,000 people died. So what a brilliant idea you traitors have come up with. Look at the hate we're breeding. Look at the fear we're feeding. Look at the lives we're leading. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Divided State of America news now. And uh, last week, Andy, I pointed out that every single US election ends with just under 50% of the population absolutely devastated. And that has proven to be even more true uh, this week, as apparently more than 100,000 Americans have petitioned the White House to ask that their states be allowed to secede from the Union after the re-election of Barack Obama. Wow, and that's not just sour grapes. Those grapes are so sour, they are a functioning vinegar at this point. <laughs> uh, the appeals were filed on the White House's We Are We The People website, which guarantees any petition an official White House response as long as they can gather 25,000 signatures. And giving the American people a website like that, Andy, is like giving a child a tambourine. <laughs> they can't be trusted with it, and they're going to make an ungodly noise. <laughs> and now, 100,000 signatures may sound like a lot um, protesting the president, until you remember that just last week the US had 60 million people vote in favour of him. So that should take the sting off it a little bit. Uh, a lot of people have uh, got very, very angry about this, uh, John, mm -hmm. um, uh, including uh, a pregnant wife who ran over her husband for not yes. voting for mm -hmm. Romney. She said she was uh, so angry uh, at the prospect of Obama staying in office and her husband not bothering to vote for Romney, that she ran him over with a car. <laughs> now, I love democracy big time, John. I really, yep. really love it. Uh, but I try not to not to let it intrude on my marriage too much. <laughs> and besides, you know, that is that is well, the first thing you learn when you're learning to drive a car is do not run people over in a fury about their politics. Well, also, also, I don't know the couple involved personally, Andy. Let me say that straight away. But I have to believe that that might be displacement frustration <laughs> for other issues in that relationship. 
I don't believe that was a healthy marriage up to the point <laughs> that he did not vote for Romney. Uh, and a Florida man uh, committed suicide after the election and left a note on his body saying, do not revive Obama. <laughs> Which, well, what a way to peg out that is. I, mean, I think that is taking it too hard, John. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the uh, 20 states uh, with petitions uh, for secession voted for Republican Mitt Romney, I guess, unsurprisingly. Uh, and the Texas petition uh, has already reached the 25,000 signature mark, at which point the White House promises a response. And it must be very tempting indeed for them to respond, <laughs> all right, f*** off then. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the kind of temptation I would definitely not be able to resist. And I guess that's one of the many reasons that I am not in politics. <laughs> <laughs> In response to some of this madness, other people in Texas have tried to go a different way because while Texas is petitioning to secede from the Union, Austin, Texas is petitioning to secede from Texas itself. <laughs> Their official petition states, we petition the Obama administration to peacefully grant the city of Austin, Texas to withdraw from the state of Texas <laughs> and remain part of the United States. I'm not even sure that the rest of Texas would even put up much of a fight over that either. <laughs> and the petition goes on to say... Austin, Texas continues to suffer difficulties stemming from the lack of civil, religious and political freedoms imposed upon the city by less liberally minded Texans. It is entirely feasible for Austin to operate as its own state within the United States in the event that Texas is successful in the current bid to secede. <laughs> it's important for Austin to remain in the Union as to do so would protect its citizens' standard of living and re-secure their rights and liberties in accordance with the original ideas and beliefs of our founding fathers. We would also like to annex Dublin, Texas, Lockhart, Texas, and China, Texas. <laughs> Going on to say, seriously, you people have no fucking idea what it's like living down here. We need help fast. <laughs> well, they could do just uh, you know, Texas for Puerto Rico on a kind of one-out-one-in basis, couldn't they? <laughs> for, for some people, the reason to want to secede comes from a very personal frustration. The petition for Alabama... Alabama secession uh, was uh, started by a man called Derek Belcher. And believe me, you do not need to see him to know that his name fits his face. <laughs> his, uh, his petition uh, has also already crossed the 25,000 signature mark. Uh, he is furious and blames the federal government for shutting down his former business, which is apparently a topless car wash. And... That is not a car wash specialising in top-down convertibles, Andy. It's a car wash specialising in top-down ladies. <laughs> it was apparently a successful business in Mobile, Alabama, until he was arrested and charged with obscenity in 2001. He said, The government ripped my business away, and now they're choking America to death with rules and regulations. I guess there's a couple of things that Senor Belcher is getting a little confused about in his anger, Andy. One, that uh, Obama was not president in 2001, and two, that all those cars that came to be washed by his whapped-out women all drove there on government-funded roads. <laughs> but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there, Andy, because, and I cannot stress this enough, I have no desire to get into an argument with a topless car wash owner called Derek Belcher. <laughs> Again. Can it keep on moving forward? Keep on moving forward.
President Obama's victory could spell the end of a conservative Supreme Court for the first time in like 40 years. This has been a decades-long campaign by conservatives to build a lasting majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. If Mitt Romney had been elected, that may have been a reality. With the election of President Obama to a second term, we now have the possibility, depending on whether President Obama appoints one, two, or three Supreme Court justices, and specifically which justices he's replacing, of actually having a liberal Supreme Court. Now, I want to propose an idea. If we look at the progress that's been made over the last 40 years on everything from civil rights, including uh, 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 racial equality, marriage equality, etc., some of the progress on the war on drugs, all of the different things that we have made strides on in the last 40 years with a conservative Supreme Court, imagine what could happen if we finally get a liberal Supreme Court. We're talking about huge things here, Lewis. And it's pretty bad that we even have to frame it this way, right? That we have to say, well, currently it's a Republican, but we prefer a liberal Supreme Court. Because They're, it's the law, right? Shouldn't all, it just be the law? Right. All of this should be uh, aside. Right. Uh, your political ideals should not be at play. Not the case, though. At all. But no, yeah. So this is a big deal. It depends on who gets replaced, though, Natan. That's the thing. Right. Um, in order to shift the balance in favor of a 5-4 to four liberal majority, you would have to probably see Scalia or Anthony Kennedy retire. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg may retire soon, but that's not going to have a net gain for the liberals. So uh, let's see what happens. Even Kennedy, hang on. Kennedy, even you. Even Kennedy, hang on. Kennedy, even you. You know, Dan put it very well. The, the bottom line is we have now shown the electoral strength. We have seen it on an electoral level. How does that translate into a policy level? Because we know that the leadership of the Democratic Party, and not, not all, but, but, but certainly um, the, the key positions are more corporatist, establishment, money-friendly. And the question is, how do we translate this electoral strength uh, into the, the policy level? And I, will, I guess we'll see. I mean, you know, look, the, as Dan put it, it would be political malpractice for the Democrats not to pursue immigration reform because it is a very important issue for the Latino community, and they voted 70%. Uh, and so, you know, this is, I, I don't know if that's where the clue is, but we, you know, in the coming weeks and months, we're going to be talking about this quite a bit. Maybe as soon as tomorrow, we'll be talking about uh, what's going to happen with the grand bargain. What are the, um, what are the dynamics? We now have a considerable, well, considerably maybe exaggerating it, but we have a more liberal Senate than we had Two days ago. I mean, that is the, the reality. Where's my list? In Montana, we have a plus two pickup 
tester is what he was. Some things, yes. Some things, no. Heitkamp from North uh, Dakota replacing uh, uh, Conrad. Um, and right, I mean that's a, that's a wash. Ken Conrad. She'll be similar to him. I mean, right. It's better to have a conservative Democrat than a radical right Republican. Indeed. Stay like that. Bob Kerry loses in Nebraska, so we lose that seat, but saves me a considerable amount of heartburn. Elizabeth Warren, there's every reason to believe, if you believe that a senator can do anything, that this senator is going to be one who does that. If you believe that a, a strong liberal in the Senate who has already shown her willingness to buck up against uh, the elite in this country, can have any value, she is that person. And when you have a guy like Sherrod Brown, when you have Elizabeth Warren, when you have Tammy Baldwin, the first, I think, the first, um, out, you know, I guess, uh, out uh, gay senator in the history of the country um but also a strong progressive i mean to have them six years away from an election and to have uh one election under sherrod brown's belt and to have elizabeth warren from massachusetts where she's not going to have to worry i think about re-election for a long time if ever um is key. I mean, these are key. And Chris Murphy in Connecticut, huge upgrade from Joe Lieberman. Now, Donnelly in Indiana may be the new Joe Lieberman, but that was Dick Luger before. <laughs> so that's an upgrade-ish. McCaskill still McCaskill, but so there we, we have moved but the Senate. But not Todd Aiken. <laughs> but not Todd Aiken. But she was McCaskill before. So we have right. moved the Senate to the left. Um, and I'm looking forward to Al Franken's second term, frankly, because I think the, the reality is when you win an election by 120 votes, it puts you in a bit of a box. You do not have the latitude that you have if you come from a state like Massachusetts. And when you do have someone like, you know, the thing about like Kennedy that he used to provide was a whole lot of breathing space on the left of people in the Senate. You understand like a marker is placed and it stretches the parameters of the debate. And Kennedy could do that because Kennedy had that seat for as long as he wanted it. Your fresh water springs so sweet and pure is choking and starting to dry. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, 
Comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at majority.fm. History was made last week. First, the first oh, bit of, of the president. A a little bit, but the real big news on my end is that last week, yes, it happened. I pooed out of my pee hole and I peed out of my butthole. Thank God. But also, that machine you invented works. It works. It's very painful though. I'm never using it again. But second of all, last week not only was President Obama reelected, which was very exciting, it was the single biggest night for gay victories in politics. I watched all the videos. It was so fucking exciting. Six openly gay men, a bisexual person, and an openly gay woman all elected into positions. Amazing. And an um, openly gay woman, um, yeah, Tammy, Tammy Baldwin. Baldwin, was from New Hampshire. Yes. And they also... Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. So yeah. I got that mixed up. So she, her state didn't legalize gay marriage. No. Yeah. Okay. But very exciting. Maine, Maryland, Washington, same-sex marriage is legal for the first time because of a popular vote. That's so fucking exciting. I really, You know really... why? Because like gay marriage was all like, for a long time, gay marriage was like not sitting at the cool kids table and like being really awkward. But then gay marriage like got its braces off uh-huh. and got some boobies. And then right. everyone was like, I want to get with gay marriage and then and then gay marriage was like oh my god I just got nominated for homecoming queen and then that's why the and now it's popular yeah. and then also don't forget because of the song popular from wicked oh right yeah, yeah. that if yeah. if it weren't really gay marriage is legal in these states now by popular vote because of wicked yes we can because of uh, put it in the history books because that's for sure absolutely and then uh, let's not forget that in Minnesota voters opposed an amendment banning gay marriage which is also not gay marriage legalization but not making it illegal so right. that's but really i mean it's like so minnesotans minnesotans they wanted they said we don't want to say yes to gay marriage yes but we don't want to say that marriage is just between a man and a woman exactly yes yeah um dead on by the way and i'm actually paying you a compliment thank you that is ripping i'm gonna talk like this today. for the rest of your okay segment. never mind then but it wasn't please don't do that uh, anyway, the president reportedly thrilled that this happened. So excited about this news. Um, so yeah, really. So he really put a change. popsicle in his butt. Did you hear that story? No, I didn't. For gay marriage, he's like, I'm gonna, I get it, gays. So I'm gonna mm. put a popsicle in my butt. Great. I just seriously doubt that the president of the United States did that. Well, you can doubt it. There's even if you have Where's doubt, the, you still a little bit. You think there might be hope. No, there. actually, there is. Why would I hope? You know that? how his why his campaign slogan is forward. Yeah, he put a popsicle stick forward into his butt. No, I mean you are stretching this. He's uh, stretching it. Okay, God damn it! All right, here's the thing. There was these incredible elections that we watched and we cheered and warmed our hearts and we thought this is it like there is a change and there is a change crying and it's super exciting. And those, those videos made me cry the, the videos of me that i sent you crying yeah the I videos know. of you crying at the videos made me cry we'll see what i my whole thing the the whole time has been like you know we should pass gay marriage like that's my thing mm-hmm. and like so i think that honestly i was not thanked in one victory speech which did honestly upset me quite a bit and and for the night when after tammy baldwin was elected because i didn't like you know really do much for her campaign but like i have said before that i i believe in gay marriage personally yeah i did disguise myself as a republican and um i did 
go on record and um, bash every gay person that I knew around me. So I did because it's just sort of like. Did you do fair. that? And then did you just mm-hmm. sing "Proud to Be an American"? Yeah, I did it all John together. Denver, yeah, yeah, and then I did the splits, and I did. I held up two sparklers in my hands, Beautiful. and then that's why that's what happened to this eye. Is I ended up accidentally some of I was going to ask grab the sparkler out of my hand and put who it out of my would eye. stitch an eye in an actual cartoon X? Well, Jennifer did you Coolidge. Do it? Oh, Jennifer, Jennifer Coolidge. Coolidge did it. Okay. In your eyes, the light, the What can I possibly add to the commentary, the euphoria, the schadenfreude of the last week? Really, there's nothing to say. I am, as so many of you are, as everyone I know is, ecstatic over the moon, at the re-election of Barack Obama, at the going down in flames of the GOP's team rape, all the pro-rape Rape babies are a gift from God. Rape is a method of conception. All those motherfuckers went down to defeat. Democrats picked up two seats in a Senate. They were expected to lose marijuana legalized uh, at the ballot box in Colorado and Washington State. Also in Washington State, we have a new state motto. Welcome to Washington State where you can get married, get high, and if somebody doesn't like it, he can get fucked. That's going to be uh, at the airport when you fly in to see your relatives if, you've, uh, if you're coming home for Christmas, coming home to Washington State. Marriage! Oh, my God! After 32 straight victories for the haters and the bigots, for the Brian Brownses and Tony Perkinses and Maggie Gallagherses, we won all four. Brian Brown, head of the National Organization of Marriage, was predicting going into last Tuesday's elections that we would lose all four. We won. Marriage equality comes to Maine, Maryland, and Washington State by a public vote at the ballot box, through the ballot box. And in Minnesota, where just a few weeks ago I went to Winona State University and predicted that we would lose, I was in the fight. I helped raise, I think, over $13,000 on my trip to Minnesota during the campaign. Terry and I personally donated $5,000 to the marriage campaign in Minnesota. I thought we would lose, though, and the polls didn't look good, but we fucking won. It didn't bring marriage to Minnesota, but it kept an anti-gay marriage ban out of the Minnesota state constitution. We have a fight left in Minnesota, and we are going to fucking win there. I am I am ecstatic. I have been calling Terry my hickbay for a long time, which, as everyone who listens to the show knows, stands for Husband in Canada, Boyfriend in America. And now I get to amend that. He's the Hick Awa Bay, which stands for husband in Canada and Washington, boyfriend in America, because DOMA still stands. A lot of people were saying in the wake of last week's vote that we had won, that it was over. It's not over. The Defense of Marriage Act is still federal law. Marriage is legal now in nine states, hopefully California soon. 15% of the country lives in states where marriage equality is the law. And if California comes through, 
if the Supreme Court allows the decision overturning Prop 8 to stand, 30 percent of the people of this country will live in a state that allows same-sex couples to marry just like all other couples. And if we can repeal DOMA, if the Supreme Court declares DOMA unconstitutional or if we can get a DOMA repeal through Congress, then we are winning. <laughs> We're winning anyway. And, you know, there's something I, I want to get off my chest. It's actually something I want to launch here on the podcast today. But before I do, I, I need to say this. We built this to steal a line from the Romney campaign that they're not going to need anymore. We built this. The breakthroughs that we saw this week, including the election of Tammy Baldwin to the U.S. Senate from the state of Wisconsin, first gay person in the U.S. Senate, we built this. Lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people came out. Speaking of bi, the election of the first openly bi person to the United States Congress last Tuesday. We came out. We fought back. We really did change the world. We have a fuck of a lot left to do. We got to repeal DOMA. We got to pass ENDA. We have unfinished business with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Trans people are still barred from serving in the military. And we have the rights of queers around the world to think about and defend and fight for. But lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people have made such tremendous progress since Stonewall. It has gotten better for us because we came out and we fought to make it better because we demanded better from ourselves, from our families, from our communities, from our leaders. La-di-da. The end. Period. But now I got to say this. Uh, I got to say something to straight people. All queer people. I think right now, this week in the United States, there's something we need to say to straight people. And that something is, thank you. I know so many straight people in Washington state where I live who worked unbelievably hard on the campaign to win marriage equality for their gay and lesbian friends, family members, neighbors. I know straight people in all four states who voted, who gave money, who worked phone banks, who knocked on doors, who pounded the pavement all in an effort to make it possible for same-sex couples to marry. Queer people, gays and lesbians, we are a tiny percentage of the population. And we laid the groundwork for the breakthroughs we saw last week in Maine, Maryland, Washington, and Minnesota. We built this, but we didn't build it on our own. The majorities in the state legislatures in Maine, Maryland, and Washington that voted to make same-sex marriage legal, straight. The governors who signed those bills into law, straight. The overwhelming majority of the people who voted in favor of marriage equality in all three states after anti-gay bigots forced public referendums on our civil rights, the majority of those voters, straight. The majority that voted against writing anti-gay bigotry into Minnesota state constitution last week, straight. And the president who took a huge political risk and came out for marriage equality before his re-election campaign, straight. It has gotten better for us, better, not perfect. But it hasn't gotten better for us in a vacuum. It has gotten better for us because straight people have gotten better about us. Rights are rights. They shouldn't be put up for a vote and we shouldn't have to say thank you when our rights are recognized. But the sad fact is that we have had to fight for our rights. But there is a happy fact. And it's really hard for me to talk about this without getting weepy. The happy fact is we are no longer fighting for our rights alone. We have help. Thousands and thousands of straight people stood with us and fought for us. We built this. We had help. We didn't have to do it on our own. And that's what I think we should thank the straight people for. We queers, all the queers out there listening, not for granting us our rights. Rights are rights are rights. 
we should thank them for joining our fight. You know, last week on Slog, my blog, my, the group blog at The Stranger that I'm a part of, I floated the idea of having a great big party for all the straight people who came through for us in Maine and Maryland and Minnesota and Washington State. But how do you fit all those straight people into a ballroom? And, you know, planning a party like that, the logistics would be terrible. When could everybody agree on one night to get together to thank all the straight people? And I don't mean, like, thanks somebody for voting our way. That's literally the least you could do, the fill out the little oval for equality. Uh, I'm talking about the, the, the straight people I'm thinking are the ones who gave money, who, who volunteered their time, who worked the phone banks, who went door to door. The straight people went above and beyond the call. How do we get them all together in a ballroom to thank them? We can't. They won't all fit in a ballroom. 30, 40 years ago, the straight people on our side could have fit in a phone booth. Today we can't fit, even just in Seattle, the straight people on our side in the biggest venue in the state. So here's what I'm proposing. Queers, gays, lesbians, bisexual, transgendered people who can hear my voice. If you know a straight person who went above and beyond the call, gave the money, pounded the pavement, worked the phone banks. I want you to take a picture of that person, maybe a picture of yourself or your family with that person, that straight person. Write a few words about what they did and go to www.straightupthanks.tumblr.com and post that picture and post that story and thank that straight person for what they've done for us, for you, for your family, for themselves too. It is better even for straight people to live in a world where gay people are treated equally. So they did it for us, they did it for themselves, but I really do think that we should be polite and say thank you. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. All of a sudden, after the elections, uh, after President Obama got 71% of the Latino vote and Mitt Romney got only 27%, the Republicans have gotten uh, a little bit more friendly uh, with the Latino community. Sean Hannity, for one, has decided, you know what? Maybe pathway to citizenship is not such a bad idea. Let's listen to him on his radio show. We've got to get rid of the immigration issue altogether. It's simple for me to fix it. I think you control the border first. You create a pathway for those people that are here. You don't say you've got to go home. And that is in a, in a position that I've evolved on. Because, you know what, it just, it's got to be resolved. The majority of people here, if, if some people have criminal records, you can send them home. But if people are here, law-abiding, participating, four years, their kids are born here, you know, it's first secure the border, pathway to citizenship, done. Pathway to citizenship, done. I've evolved. So he's the first one to get up in this outfit. <laughs> and then... 
Uh, all of a sudden, Lindsey Graham, Mr. Oh, secure the border. Bipartisan bill. Uh, me? I've always wanted a bipartisan bill on immigration reform. Chuck Schumer, where are you? Come on. Let's party. <laughs> Hola. I'm Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Fail. <laughs> John Boehner now all of a sudden talking about, well, on immigration reform. Yeah, sure, of course, immigration reform. So that has now, of course, encouraged President Obama as well. Now, President Obama uh, has said that he was always in favor of uh, immigration reform, but he had a kind of a funny way of showing it in his first term by not pushing any legislation. They obviously pushed health care, they pushed a lot of different things, and they were busy. But it's kind of a funny thing to say that ah, I was a little too busy for you. Okay, so now the Dream Act he was good on, but as far as comprehensive immigration reform, pathway to citizenship, he just absolutely did not do it in his first term. Now that Latinos have handed him the victory in the election and the Democrats get it through their heads, hey, you know what? Maybe we should actually do something for a community that helps us win elections. Oh my God. So when he was meeting with progressives, all of a sudden, President Obama also wants to do immigration reform. And right away, unprompted, this is what he said, quote, I've been in a number of meetings with him. It is a White House attendee in that progressive meeting, okay, in the White House. I've been in a number of meetings with him on this topic. It's been pretty rough. But this one, the passion, intensity, seriousness, I was pretty struck. If there's one thing he was crystal clear he was going to get done in 2013, it was immigration reform. He was going to lean into it. Man, politicians amuse me. What do you, how are you going to help me, right? Uh, before, I was going to be tough on immigrants. And by the way, if you don't remember, President Obama broke the record on number of deportations, crushed George Bush's record on deportations. And because why? I'm going to prove I'm a centrist. I'm a centrist. That's going to help me win the election. Oh, no, that didn't work. And at the very end, if you remember, right before the election, he's like, Dream Act. Dream Act. Yeah, Dream Act. You know what? Oh, the guy who had been saying, oh, I can't do anything because these guys in the Senate, I mean, with the filibuster and the Republicans now control the House, there's nothing I can do, man. Right before the election, when he realized he desperately needed Latino votes, he's like, executive order. I'm doing an executive order, and if you came here to this country, your parents brought you, well, you know, I'm not going to kick you out of the country, and I'm with you. And then they give him their votes in overwhelming majorities, and as soon as the election is over, and he knows the Republicans have bent their heads on this one, and, and they're giving in, he says, let me tell you about my intensity and seriousness in doing immigration reform. Wow, that seems so heartfelt politicians. All right, well, on the upside, we're going to get immigration reform. So, Mexican-Americans, hola. Well, they're right now Mexicans, but don't worry, soon they'll be Mexican-Americans. Way down here, you need a reason to move. Feel a fool, running your state side. This happened. But despite all our differences, most of us 
share certain hopes for America's future. We want our children to live in America that isn't threatened by the destructive power of a warming planet. The destructive power of the what? He's talking about climate change. Who was that guy? There. Yeah, I know. That's President Obama in the middle of his victory speech on election night. He actually referred to global warming for the first time in ages. And that was for the first time in a speech that a lot of Americans actually saw. But the question now is, will he and can he deliver? With the Republican majority in the House of Representatives, there is only so much that he can do. Very soon, Obama will have to make a final decision on whether to approve the controversy controversial Keystone XL tar sands pipeline from Canada. More immediate is the looming expiration of the crucial wind energy production tax credit that expires in December. The U.S. wind industry warns that 37,000 workers will lose their jobs immediately if it's not renewed. The Republican majority in the House is against renewing the wind energy tax credit, even as they favor keeping billions in annual permanent oil industry subsidies. Now, they were against renewing the wind tax credit before the election. Are they still against it even after the election? Very much so. It seems like they're going to try to use it as a bargaining chip. Message not received. Now, some groups have floated the idea of a carbon tax as these so-called fiscal cliff negotiations get underway on Capitol Hill. A carbon tax on heat-trapping carbon emissions would force polluters to pay for their pollution and fund clean energy projects, and it would also reduce the deficit by bringing in an estimated $150 billion a year in new revenue. Even Grover Norquist of Americans for Tax Reform was open to the the idea of a carbon tax. He said on Monday that it wouldn't violate his anti-tax pledge. That is until American Energy Alliance, a Koch brothers front group, smacked him down hard, <laughs> saying, quote, Grover, just butch it up and oppose this lousy idea directly. Wow. Yeah. Now, now, we should tell folks that the carbon tax was the more progressive way to deal with uh, greenhouse gases. But in trying to compromise, uh, the Obama administration and, and Democrats had gone along with the idea of cap and trade, which was initially a Republican idea until the Republicans decided they didn't like it anymore either. So right. now we may go back to the more progressive idea of a, just a direct carbon tax. Well, it's possible, but the White House says that President Obama has no plans at this point to introduce a carbon tax. We'll see what happens. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. The lesson of election 2012 for Time Magazine's Joe Klein. Try not to be shocked by this. He thinks Obama needs to move to the right. 
Quote, it will and should be argued that the election was a mandate for moderation. The last month of Mitt Romney's campaign, when he rushed to the center and suddenly made it a race, ratified the real will of the people. A sensible centrism that runs deeper than the over-caffeinated bluster that seems to dominate the media. The election hinted that the third rail of American politics, the certain death that comes to those who question entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, is beginning to lose its juice, close quote. Amazing how pundits like Klein can discern the real will of the people, even as the people fairly scream something different. Exit polls clearly showed that voters are not interested in cutting Social Security or Medicare benefits. They never were, and they aren't now. Not that public opinion can stay Obama from pursuing a grand bargain that cuts such benefits. That's certainly possible, but it's not what the public wants. The idea that people are crying out for a centrism, which on examination turns out to be policies well to the right of actual public opinion, now that's an idea we'd like to see lose its juice. And finally, in a similar vein, pundits and reporters are eager to give Obama tips on what he should do in his second term. Some of this advice is about what he failed to do in his first. One of the more curious examples came from Meet the Press host David Gregory on November 11th. Jim, I always thought that one of the big mistakes of the first Obama term is that he never had a moment in the Rose Garden where he was flanked by the biggest business leaders in America and said, look, we're going to work together in common cause to deal with this economy, to deal with our fiscal position and ultimately affect America's influence in the rest of the world. Can he have that moment now? Gregory's assertion mimics what Republicans and various right-wing pundits have been saying, that corporate America has been under assault by the Obama administration. The idea that Obama doesn't embrace CEOs enough is odd. He picked GE CEO Jeffrey Immel to head up a jobs task force. He tapped Wall Street friends like Tim Geithner to serve in his cabinet. But sure, maybe Obama should have stood somewhere with some CEOs to talk about the economy. Well, he did that too, eight days after his inauguration, in fact. Obama had a White House event with the CEOs of Honeywell and IBM who were there to support the stimulus bill Congress was voting on that day. It doesn't matter whether Gregory believes the right-wing contention that Obama hasn't been nice enough to corporate America or just knows that his job requires him to play along with it. From viewers' perspective, it looks just the same. Beyond the shape of President Obama's second term administration and who's in his cabinet, we now know that President Obama has scheduled a major meeting for tomorrow in Washington with labor leaders. So that'll be on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, the president is going to be meeting with a lot of CEOs, uh, with business leaders. Now, obviously, the world of big business, 
in some ways, large and small, chose Mitt Romney over President Obama during this election season. They made their choice early and loudly and publicly and put a ton of money behind Mr. Romney. And it did not work. Their guy did not win. President Obama got reelected anyway. And there presumably is some sort of political reckoning for that, which presumably will start this Wednesday at that meeting at the White House. If not a reckoning, then at least a turn of the page. The White House is signaling that the president actually wants to enlist business leaders in his effort to end the Bush-era tax cuts for income over a quarter million dollars and for a spending deal to go along with that plan. The president wants the business community to bring their political capital to bear on an effort that they might actually get something in, re something in return for. The White House characterizing their plans as a, a deal that would actually help bring down the deficit but without destroying the economic recovery and the middle class along with it. Should not come as a surprise that President Obama is pushing hard on ending the Bush tax cuts for income over a quarter million dollars. That's probably been the president's most consistent, most repeated promise on policy. I mean, here's what he said about the Bush tax cuts on high income right as he was agreeing to extend those tax cuts back in 2010. I'm as opposed to the high-end tax cuts today as I've been for years. In the long run, we simply can't afford them. And when they expire in two years, I will fight to end them. Even as he was agreeing to extend those tax cuts that time, the president was promising right there that he would not do it again. In April of last year, he went one step further. He issued an ultimatum. In December, I agreed to extend the tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans because it was the only way I could prevent a tax hike on middle-class Americans. But we cannot afford $1 trillion worth of tax cuts for every millionaire and billionaire in our society. We can't afford it. And I refuse to renew them again. The president in April of last year saying he will refuse to renew the Bush tax cuts for the highest levels of income again. This has not been a secret. During election season, the president campaigned on ending the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy, uh, both in TV ads and out on the stump. Every speech, all the time, it was a central pillar of his campaign message. And then after he won re-election on Tuesday, resoundingly, in his first public comments after election night, the first thing the president said was that he was going to end those Bush tax cuts on high income. I'm not going to ask students and seniors and middle-class families to pay down the entire deficit while people like me making over $250,000 aren't asked to pay a dime more in taxes. I'm not going to do that. And now, just in case it wasn't clear enough, the Obama administration is floating the idea that the president may very well barnstorm the country in support of this idea that he has been declaring since 2010. But, but it's not clear that he needs to, frankly. Republicans already seem to be uh, caving on this issue in ways, at least small ways, at least starting to cave, at least thinking about caving, at least sniping at each other about the possibility of caving. And if the Republicans don't cave, the president and the Democrats do have the option of just letting all of the Bush tax cuts expire. That is what is set to happen automatically, and they seem willing to let that happen. They can always sort of fix it retroactively before the end of the tax year. So what else is in the realm of possibility right now for the Democrats? I mean, don't forget the president's meeting with labor leaders tomorrow. That happens before he makes his case to the CEO. Here's what the CEOs that he's going to meet with on Wednesday, excuse me. Here's what's, what's on AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka's mind as he heads into tomorrow's meeting. Mr. Trumka has been reminding the press that in Ohio, AFL-CIO members are 83% white, 40% are evangelicals, 53% of them own guns, and they voted 70% for Barack Obama. 
Labor knows exactly how important it was to the president's reelection effort, particularly in the swing states. What about labor law reforms? What about making the marketplace more attractive to unions and union membership? Mitt Romney ran against President Obama as if the president had already put in place big sweeping labor law changes. But the Obama administration really did not affect major change in labor law in the first term. There's still lots of things left on the labor agenda, like a bill to make it easier for unions to get recognized and harder for companies to block unions from forming. Could labor reforms be in the realm of possibility in the second term Obama administration? Or how about this? Yesterday, when the president spoke on veterans' issues at Arlington National Cemetery, he touched on something that certainly should be in the realm of possibility for a second term, the sometimes months-long backlog that our new veterans are facing when they try to access the benefits they have earned when they get home from war. No veteran should have to wait months or years for the benefits that you've earned, so we will continue to attack the claims backlog. We won't let up. We will not let up. Yes, that claims backlog is actually a disaster, and it's getting worse, and it needs to be fixed. It is a very specific problem that cannot be allowed to continue if we are to make good on the promises that we've made to people who fought in our name. And it is on the president to get it done. And if his VA secretary, Eric Shinseki, cannot get it done as head of the VA, then probably the president needs to find a new second-term VA secretary. Fixing the veterans' claims back benefit backlog is something that needs to be in the realm of possibility for the Obama administration in its second term. Later on in the show tonight, we're going to be talking about how and where the actual election is still happening, where the election is still a great big chaotic mess. Now members of Congress are proposing election reform at the federal level, legislation to set out uniform rules for early voting all across the country to make it so we don't have partisan administration in charge of elections. Real, meaningful, nonpartisan election reform could be in the realm of possibility for Democrats if they choose to work on that. Or how about this? On the Sunday shows yesterday, Republicans started to sound a little more conciliatory toward the idea of immigration reform, with Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, going so far as to say, quote, we have nobody to blame but ourselves when it comes to losing Hispanics. I intend to tear this wall down and pass an immigration reform bill that's an American solution to an American problem. Softening toward comprehensive immigration reform is even happening among some Fox News Channel personalities. Of course, not on Fox News Channel, but on the Fox News hosts' radio shows, which they call sotto voce. Uh, but still, it's happening. So immigration reform may be more within the realm of possibility in the near term than it has been for a very long time. Last week, on Thursday, two days after the election, Mark Kelly, the husband of former Arizona Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, made a statement at the sentencing hearing of the man who shot Gabby Giffords and 18 other people January last year outside a Tucson supermarket. Mr. Kelly's statement included a poignant call for a restoration to sanity on gun policy in this country for at least a return to what used to be the gun laws in America. Quote, we have a political class that is afraid to do something as simple as have a meaningful debate about our gun laws and how they are being enforced. As a nation, we've repeatedly passed up the opportunity to address this issue. After Columbine, after Virginia Tech, after Tucson, after Aurora, we have done nothing. In this state, meaning Arizona, we've elected officials so feckless in their leadership that they would say, as in the case of Governor Jan Brewer, I don't think it has anything to do with the size of the magazine or the caliber of the gun. She went on and said, even if the shooter's weapon had held fewer bullets, he'd have another gun, maybe. He could have had three guns in his pocket. She said this just one week after a high-capacity magazine allowed you to kill six and wound 19 others before being wrestled to the ground while attempting to reload. 
He said that to the face of the man who shot his wife. So everyone says that gun law reform is impossible. But maybe at least fixing the expired assault weapons ban that used to be sort of a consensus piece of legislation in the country, maybe that could at least be in the realm of possibilities for the second Obama administration term. On Friday, we found out that Jay Inslee won the Washington state governor's race. What's the thing that governor-elect Jay Inslee is most known for in his whole legislative career up until this point? Clean energy, biotech. He's the pay attention to climate change guy. He's now governor of Washington state. Of course, today, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York state, came out and said he will be asking for $30 billion for New York state in storm relief. That money would be in part to shore up New York's infrastructure so it can withstand storms of increased frequency and increased severity due to climate change. So while the new governor of Washington will be out trying to fight climate change, the governor of New York is also calling for action to make us more resilient so we can sustain ourselves in the face of damage that will happen on an increasingly frequent basis because of climate change. So who knows? Maybe even something like climate change, heading off further climate change and responding to what we've got already, maybe that could be in the realm of possibility for a second term. What about the things that we know the president wanted to accomplish in his first term? Things he specifically said he wanted to get done in his first term and he didn't do. What about closing Guantanamo? Remember once upon a time when that was the plan? Maybe that is back in the realm of possibilities in the president's second term. And hey, let's just go out on a wild hair here. What about ending the war in Afghanistan ahead of schedule? Could a second Obama term see the war ending earlier than we thought? What is within the realm of possibility now? What can Democrats achieve now that they could not have achieved before, say, last Tuesday? I mean, they can't run the table. There are still Republicans in Washington, and Republicans do still control the House. The world is not the Democrats' oyster right now, but just ask the re Republicans. It's at least getting clammy, right? <laughs> Democrats can't just do anything they want, but they have an opportunity right now to recast the realm of what is possible. California, and I'm a little late in the game, but I wanted to get in on Sam Cedar's rant about high fructose corn syrup. We always talk about liberals having the facts on their side, but no, we need to stick to the facts. What drove me crazy was particularly when he compared to referring to high fructose corn syrup as sugar as saying that coolant is sugar. I really don't think that he understands what sugar is. Fructose and glucose, which are the two main constituents, the high fructose corn syrup in different proportions, are monosaccharide sugars. They are chemically, they are chemical sugars, they're found in nature all over the place. What Sam was talking about when he said sugar was table sugar, sucrose, which is a disaccharide sugar, the combination of two monosaccharides, specifically, wait for it, fructose and glucose. So to your body, not a whole lot of difference between a 50-50 high fructose corn syrup mixture and sucrose. Even the glycemic index of sucrose is pretty much the average of the two monosaccharides uh, indices. Honey, half fructose. Agave nectar, which health food trendies love, 75% fructose. I also wanted to 
get in and mention on the example he gave of the mother with who took her child off of all the additives and cured her problem. We really have to avoid the kind of anecdotal evidence that others use so badly. I mean, are we going to believe Jenny McCarthy's anti-vaccine twaddle now because of her anecdotal evidence? And the whole thing is all the naturalist fallacy, and we really don't have time to go into all the details of that. Well, thanks for listening to me. Love the show, of course, but we, you know, need to stick to actual facts. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, Jay. It's Doug in Chicagoland. I wanted to call and let you know that that was a very interesting passage you read about the uh, world's food supply and how the population grows and how the uh, hungry still do not get fed. Um, I, I like the way you presented it, and that did help me understand uh, the problem a little, uh, little better. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, I think of companies like Man- Monsanto. I, I think of it as corporate profits and uh, seeds blowing over into other fields, and then they claim that that's their product and you can't grow it unless you give us a cut type thing. Um, you know, I, I, I've always looked at it from an economic standpoint. Um, but, um, hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it. You know, on the Alexis podcast, uh, good stuff. You know, especially what Rachel Meadow had to say. She really nailed uh, how everybody in the right-wing media were completely uh, misinforming their audience to try and... Uh, achieve uh, a Mitt Romney presidency. Um, anyway, you take care. Have a good one. And uh, keep up the great work. I, I, love, I always look forward to the next podcast. Thanks. Uh, hi, Jay. This is Corey from Springfield, Missouri. Um, I wanted to call and weigh in on your take on the famine and uh, uh, the idea that, you know, we need, you know, GMO food to uh, feed more people. Um, I was actually pretty surprised at your uh, what seemed like kind of a market-based uh, supply-side solution to this uh, to this problem. I, I disagree with you because I think I think that we have uh, moral obligations to you know our fellow people who are starving, and I, I think I think it is our our duty to try to provide them with food. I don't think the solution to this problem is to stop for trying to produce enough food to feed the people that are starving. Uh, I think the solution to this problem is to you know. Try to fulfill our moral obligations to those people by producing that food, but at the same time, try to educate them as to you know why uh, you know why their population is growing at such a uh, such a high rate, um, and and to get them kind of to stop that. And kind of uh, by analogy, I was thinking about this. What if you had like this very large family, right? And everyone in this family is a, a chain smoker, and they like to smoke in bed. Well, okay, so uh, they smoke in bed, they end up falling asleep, and you know their house is on fire. So if you go, you know, you call the fire department and you you rescue them, well, well wherever they end up next, it's going to happen again. So uh, I feel like what you're arguing is that we should essentially just stop calling the fire department, which I think is, is uh, a little bit callous. Um, I think instead you, you say to those people and then you say, hey, look, um, this is the reason that your house keeps burning down. Um, you know, you teach their children not to either not to smoke or not to smoke in bed or, or whatever. Um, you know, this this is the root of your problem. Here's how to fix it. Um, so I think uh, I don't know. I, hopefully that uh, gives you a little bit better idea of uh, I don't know another perspective. Maybe you've already thought of this, but I'd love to hear your take. Thanks. 
thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So just to quickly respond to the last voicemail we heard, you know, in his analogy with the family of smokers, you know, that analogizes smoking to reproducing. And reproducing is certainly much more, uh, you know, ingrained and inherent part of being human than smoking is and encouraging people to simply not reproduce is I would imagine a slightly touchier subject than, uh, you know, than getting them to not smoke. One of the angrier comments I got on Facebook is from Scott. Scott says the defense of it now, you know, the anti-GMO rant was a bit embarrassing. The, The defense of it now, let the third world starve is absurd, heartless and idiotic to say the least. You completely ignore contraception and, and jump straight to genocide. Are you sure about that? Maybe you should voluntarily stop eating or is that only for the poorer folks? And so, you know, my thought on that, you know, comparing this to the voicemail is that, you know, do people voluntarily stop eating? Do you ask the poor people to stop eating? Do you ask the poor people to stop having kids? You know, what absolutely natural part of being human are we going to insist that, you know, anyone stop doing? But to actually respond to all of this, I'm not going to give my own uh, my own opinion. I'll, I'll, I'll let the book uh, speak for itself, the book uh, Ishmael that, that started this whole conversation. I'm going to jump backwards just a, just a few pages to before this, the excerpt that I read before because it actually does address contraception. And, uh, and so I'll, I'll just let it uh, speak for itself. So from the book again. Given an expanding food supply, any population will expand. This is true of any species, including the human. They've been proving this here for 10,000 years. For 10,000 years, they've steadily increased food production to feed an increased population, and every time they've done this, the population has increased still more. I sat there for a minute thinking. Then I said, Mother culture doesn't agree. Well, certainly not. I'm sure she disagrees most strenuously. What does she say? She says it's within our power to increase food production without increasing our population. To what end? Why increase food production? To feed the millions who are starving. And as you feed them, will you extract a promise that they will not reproduce? Well, no, that's not part of the plan. So what will happen if you feed the starving millions? They'll reproduce and our population will increase. Without fail, this is an experiment that has been performed in your culture annually for 10,000 years with completely predictable results. Increasing food production to feed an increasing population results in yet another increase in population. Obviously, it has to have this result, and to predict any other is simply to indulge in biological and mathematical fantasies. Even so, I thought some more, Mother Culture says that if it comes to that, birth control will solve the problem. Yes, if you're ever so foolish as to get into a conversation on this subject with some of your friends, you'll find they heave a great sigh of relief when they remember to make this point. Whew, off the hook. It's like the alcoholic who swears he'll give up the drink just before it ruins his life. Global population control is always something that's going to happen in the future. It was something that was going to happen in the future when you were 3 billion in 1960. Now when you're 5 billion, it's still something that's going to happen in the future. True, nevertheless, it could happen. It could indeed, but not as long as you're enacting this story. As long as you're enacting this story, you will go on answering famine with increased food production. You've seen the ads for sending food to starving people around the world. Yes. 
Have you ever seen ads for sending contraceptives? No. Never. Mother culture talks out of both sides of her mouth on this issue. When you say to her population explosion, she replies, global population control. But when you say to her famine, she replies, increased food production. But as it happens, increased food production is an annual event and global population control is an event that never happens at all. So there you go. Once again, I, I've now read almost the entire chapter of this book on, on this subject, and I, I will come to some sort of a conclusion on it uh, in the next episode. I, I, I certainly am not saying that I agree entirely with, with the book. Uh, it's definitely morally dubious, to say the least. But if this doesn't get a conversation going, I don't know what will. Uh, so please keep your comments coming in at 206-202-3410. How is this problem dealt with? If it even can be in a way that's you know morally uh, and and rationally feasible and cohesive. So that's it for today. Just a quick note that as I do every year, I'm going to take one episode off for the Thanksgiving break as I visit with family and do all those sorts of things. But after that, I'll be back to a normal schedule. So stay tuned in for that. And thanks everyone for listening. Thanks everyone for uh, supporting the show. Uh, if you've become a member or made a one-time donation, that is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought I'd black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to Since the fall